0: Well, today is the beginning of a teaching series that will take us through the rest of the month. It's a short three-part series, and it's called The Church Just Wants My Money. And we're going to be talking about the relationship between the church and money, and our presuppositions about that relationship, questions, myths, clarity, all sorts of things we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks. Now, some of you probably saw a blank piece of green paper fall out of your info sheet when you opened it up this morning. Uh, This, thankfully, is not my sermon notes. (laughs) You might have thought, oh, boy, Keith was not ready on Sunday. No, thankfully, it's not sermon notes here or sermon outline. Uh, This actually is an opportunity for you to ask questions. So today and next week, as you listen to myself speak, and then next week, Pastor Brad will be back here on Sunday morning, and he'll be speaking. Um, If anything comes up, a question that you have about a story, uh, something in your own life about finances, generosity, how the church uses money, anything like that, you've got a question write it down on this little green piece of paper, and then you can pass it along to me, you can leave it at the Welcome Center, and then uh, two weeks from now, on November 24th, Al Thiessen and Brad, they're going to be co-teaching together, and part of their, their time is going to be responding to questions. They'll do a short question and answer session. So these questions, after they've been vetted we'll find out if they are, are responded to on the 24th. So uh, here's the thing, too. If, if you've already lost this green piece of paper, or you never got one, or you think of a question on Wednesday, we will allow you to put in a different piece of paper. It doesn't have to be this green one. You can choose a different colored piece of paper, and you can bring it next Sunday. Or if you want to do the electronic thing, you can post it onto Facebook, or you can email us, or, or do something like that. But take advantage. It's great to ask questions. It's great to interact uh, with this subject, and we certainly want to, do that during this series. Today's story as it's been read and as it's commonly known as is called The Widow's Offering. And I don't remember the first time I heard this story because I think I was probably pretty young, but I remember that I liked this story. I liked the image of this story and there's a pretty classic representation of an illustrated version of what this story may have looked like. I liked this story because the woman looks like the hero. If this was a, a script And if we had to kind of isolate different character roles, we'd probably say that the widow is the the hero in this story, and Jesus kind of acts as the narrator for what's going on, both physically and in people's hearts. Jesus seems to commend the actions of this woman, even though other people would have looked down at her because of her social status. Jesus, Jesus notices this woman, even though there's lots of other people putting money in the offering box, And my impression of this woman, whether it's a picture that I developed in my own mind or whether it was something in an illustration like this or something that a speaker talked about, my impression of this woman is that she was happy. She was happy to give what she gave, even though she was a widow, even though she didn't have someone providing for her, even though she was dependent on other people's charity, she gave generously and she did it with a sense of joy she approached that offering box with a sense of God-honoring pride. But now when I read this story, when I read this story now, I have a new reaction. The story's certainly likable, but it's also troubling. It makes me feel uncomfortable. And I bet it had a pretty similar effect on the disciples who were there during that time as well. Now the story's short. It's only four verses long. It's direct it's memorable. If we wanted to, we could memorize this story pretty easily. In fact, you could choose which version of the story you wanted to memorize. You could, you could memorize the version in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Or you could turn over to the Gospel of Luke. He tells the story as well. It's at the end of his 21st uh, chapter. And it sounds almost exactly the same, these two stories. Very, very simple story. But the more we dig into this story the more complex it gets, and a little bit more troubling as well. And I think it's troubling because the story is about things that we generally don't like to talk about. The story's about money, it's about religion, and it's about a widow. I mean, those are kind of our big three themes in this story. And they're not usually safe topics. People usually don't interact and talk about these topics with people they don't know very well. This isn't something you talk about on a commute with someone. You don't usually just bring up money and and the poor and, and religion. It's not simply done. They're private topics. They're usually censored topics. Sometimes we even ignore these topics. Shortly after I graduated from college, I spent a summer working in the beautiful state of Alaska. Absolutely phenomenal summer. I was there for about four months or so. And I was a tour director, so my job was people went on a seven-day cruise. They flew from all over the world, literally. I met people from, from all over the planet, and they flew to Vancouver, right? This beautiful city that no one knew about in Canada. And so they flew to Vancouver, and then they took a seven-day cruise up the coast of BC and, of course, into, into Alaska, and then they, they finished in a, a, a city called Seward, I guess we could probably call it a, a town. It's more like a town than a city. And that's the, the big spot that all the cruise ships go to. And then my job is, is, I was the tour director, so along with the driver of a motor coach, it's like this half-million-dollar bus, basically, but you don't call it a bus because a bus just sounds like you're going to school or, or you don't have much money. No, this is a motor coach, okay? So, so then we came with the motor coach, and we got all the people off the cruise ship onto the motor coach, and then I babysat them for the rest of their trip. I was basically just a, just a, a, an adult babysitter of a whole bunch of, of people, whether they were in their 20s. We did have a few honeymooners there, but most people we had, uh, they were retired people. The people that had been dreaming about going to Alaska for 30 years. It was amazing. It was like I was fulfilling their dreams, even though I hardly knew them. And so then we would, we would go to these different spots in Alaska, depending on what trip that they booked three-day four-day sometimes seven-day land tours and i remember during my training as as myself and other people i worked with as we were going through alaska learning where we were staying downloaded all this information about the history of alaska and things to entertain your people and what to do and what to not to do i remember specifically my boss saying there's some things that you should not talk about When you're on the motor coach like there's topics that you shouldn't bring up or interpersonal conversation You shouldn't ask questions and basically what she said was there's three things to ignore Don't talk about religion Don't talk about money And don't talk about politics Those were kind of the classic three things not to talk about Now at the time I was a seminary student so I made it a little bit tough, you know, kind of naturally thinking about religious things. Kind of thinking about what do people believe? What does this mean? How do different faith systems and ideologies differ? Okay. Uh, secondly, because I was a seminary student, I was trying to make money. Like I went to Alaska to make money. The, the more, uh, the well the better you do in tourism, typically the better tips you get. And so I'm thinking, you know, if I do really well, then that helps offset my student costs. Also looking to get an engagement ring. Like money was on my mind during that trip, definitely, okay? And then thirdly, uh, politics. Like that was when George Bush was in office. So even though like I'm not a political junkie, everyone wants to talk about it. And it's like, wow, these three things, I can't, okay, I can't, I can't talk about these things. So instead I talked about the weather and I told, you know, tame jokes. Like that's That's what I had to do all summer. And you know what? It made people happy. You don't talk about those things and people feel good about themselves. Very, very safe topics. Now this story, the widow's offering, it might make some people feel happy. But it's loaded with topics that typically make people feel very, very uneasy. But regardless of how you feel about this story, whether you feel like it's, it's inspiring, whether it's frustrating, whether it's convicting or makes you feel angry, it doesn't change the fact that this story is in our Bibles. And for those of us who call ourselves Christian and believe in the authority of Scripture, we have this understanding that these are not just stories, but these are events. There was eyewitnesses to these things happening. They shared stories with each other, then the stories were written down, and then they've been treasured by the church for thousands of years of saying, this is what Jesus said about what happened here in this story. And this story is still relevant. There's many reasons why it's an important story for us to think about. So Jesus is at the temple, and the temple is the worship center for Jews. It's the place that they go. It's kind of like their church. And so Jesus is at the temple like he was at many times. And we know that he's in the temple because if you flip back just the verse uh, before Curtis started reading, and uh, verse 41 is when we started this story, but if you look back in verse 35 of chapter 12, we find out that that is the setting. He's teaching in the temple. He's in the temple courts and he's teaching the people. And uh, we find out too that the, the offering where this setting is, uh, that was also within the temple. So we know that that's the setting. Jesus is there. And Mark tells us that while he is there, he actually positions himself close to the offering box. He sits down opposite or across from the temple treasury, and he watches. He watches people put money into the treasury box. He sees rich people throw in large amounts of money. And not just a few people, but it sounds like there's lots of people that come past the offering box. And then he sees a widow. He sees a widow approach the offering box, and the widow's described as poor. And she drops in two coins. And each coin is called a lepta. That's the, the Roman coin, is, that's believed was the actual coin that she dropped in. And from what we know about this time in history, the coins were probably small, and they are probably made out of either bronze or copper. And two Roman lepta, so she deposited two, so if you look at at her combined total, it supposedly had a value of about 1 64th of a day's wages. So if you get paid for an eight-hour day, two lepta amounts for seven and a half minutes of work. So if you want, you know, you can do the math in your head, find out your salary, how much you make in a day, seven and a half minutes of your work is the equivalent of what she put in that offering box. Now, your Bible version might say specifically what they think that that was. Uh, a lot of times they'll say there was two small copper coins, but you know, we don't know that with absolute certainty. But a lot of versions will say it amounted to one cent or a couple of pennies. The value for us today might be a little bit different. We're looking at inflation and we don't even have pennies anymore. So maybe it was a couple of dollars. We don't know for sure. But the actual value of her offering really doesn't matter because of what Jesus says next. She could have given a penny or she could have given ten dollars. And doesn't change the point that Jesus makes. Because in verse 43, Jesus calls his disciples and he says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others. Now when Jesus says all the others, he's talking about all the other people, right? He's sitting there watching. So all the other people that have come, no matter what they put in, he says this poor widow has put in more than all those other people. Now, I think there probably would have been at least one disciple. I'd like to think that there was one disciple that thought like I do at least. I would like to, I think there'd be at least one disciple that said, actually Jesus, um, I don't know if you saw this, maybe you weren't paying attention. There was some rich people, They, they, they they had piles of money they put in. That woman just put in two little coins. Like she didn't put in the most, they put in the most. Sorry to embarrass you in front of everyone else, but you're a little bit wrong there. And of course, Jesus clarifies what he means. He says, They, all the other people, they gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. And that's it. The story ends. It finishes right there. Jesus tells us that the poor widow, not the rich people, gave the most. And the reason the widow gave the most is because she sacrificed the most. Based on what she gave, she had the most to lose. She gave what she had to live on, and the rich people apparently gave what they could easily afford. The widow lives by a principle that author Chip Ingram identifies in his book called The Genius of Generosity. This is the principle. God measures generosity not by the size of the gift, but by the size of the sacrifice. God measures generosity not by the size of the gift, but by the size of the sacrifice. The widow gave sacrificially, which Jesus says, which is why Jesus says she truly gave the most. He defines generosity by the impact of the gift, not the amount of the gift. Because generosity is not measured by the size of the gift but by the size of the sacrifice. Now, I'm guessing the idea of sacrificial giving, I'm guessing it's a phrase that you've probably heard before. You may have heard explained. You may have read about it. Maybe you've heard it in church or in other spheres of life. But even if you may have heard of sacrificial giving, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's under easy to understand. Like the whole concept of giving sacrificially, for me at least, is very difficult to comprehend. What does that really look like? What does it mean? What does it look like on a budget to give sacrificially? A friend and I were discussing this very topic uh, several years ago. We were just simply talking about our finances. We weren't comparing actual numbers or anything like that, but we were just talking about some of the things that we gave our money to, different uh, missionaries, different mission organizations, and, and why we did this and why we did that, and kind of what our thoughts were about all of that stuff. And I remember telling my friend, well, I want to be a sacrificial giver. Like, I want to be someone who gives sacrificially, but I don't really know what that means. Like, what does that actually look like? What's the balance between being generous and and trying to to be obedient to what Scripture tells us to do and and how to operate and look at finances and and being foolish and just kind of like giving away more money than actually would be healthy for you and your family and your future and all these other things. And I remember at the time that my wife and I were already giving a, a percentage of our money away and we felt good about that and we thought like that was wise for us. But, I, I was just wondering, you know, should we be giving more? Are we missing out on something? Is there an opportunity that, that we're missing? And so maybe I thought, well, maybe we should give away more. And, and because currently within our budget, it doesn't really feel like we're missing out on any great luxury Um, Maybe we aren't giving sacrificially. So maybe we need to give more and then we'll kind of feel the impact and we can sacrifice things like Food quality and savings for our future. Like maybe that's what it means to live sacrificially I think some people would call this sacrificial faithfulness Other people might just call it foolishness. I don't know But these are some of the questions that I was asking and I still remember what my what my friend said because I was rambling, like I am now. And, and I was just, you know, asking all these different questions and thinking about it. And then he said, sacrificial giving means that it's got to hurt. It's got to hurt. Now, his words were helpful, but at the same time, they didn't give me a formula to put in my budget and say, you know, must hurt. And then I, I came out with a new number. But, in fact, my friend's words sound very, very close to what this same author chip ingram says about sacrificial giving he says it this way you know you've given sacrificially when your giving impacts your lifestyle it has to make some sort of impact on your lifestyle i think the whole idea of sacrificial giving is more of an art than a science and i think this is probably what jesus was driving out in this story the widow's gift hurt it changed the way that she would live the rich people's gifts did not But the thought that giving shouldn't hurt isn't really the most troubling part of this story. There are several surprises in this story that challenge what you and I might think about giving. And they center on the actions of Jesus. For instance, I'm a bit surprised that Jesus doesn't stop this woman from giving. I really am. Because when you think about the context of this story, I mean, this was a a widow. She had no husband to provide for her, which in those days, that was her livelihood. There was no man to, to provide for her, and so really she was dependent on the generosity and the charity of other people. There wasn't really work that she could do in order to help herself out. She was sentenced, really, to a life of poverty. And so for all the times that Jesus talks about caring for the poor Looking out for others, and then you combine those with all of his scathing remarks about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all these people that seem to be in control of of what's happening at the temple. Part of me is surprised that Jesus doesn't run over and intercept what she's doing and say something to the effect of, Don't give what little you have to the leaders who won't do any good with it. These people are greedy, they're full of injustice. These are the type of people that keep you from being cared for in society. You need these coins way more than they do. So keep them. Invite some of your friends over who are in a similar situation to you. Buy food for each other. Look out for yourself first. You're in need. I mean, The teachers of the law are people that Jesus just finished talking about at the end of the story before this one. If you've got your Bibles, look at that comment. Chapter 12 of the book of Mark, verse 40. He talks about how these people devour widows' houses. These are the very people. So isn't it a little bit surprising that Jesus wouldn't say, Hey, wait a second, widow. You're already getting devoured. Why don't you save what little you have? Because you know that they're probably going to use it for these horrendous things. Why doesn't Jesus say any of those things? Why does he just sit there and watch her put those coins into the offering box? Well, I don't really know for sure, which is probably why I'm going to write down my question on this green piece of paper and see if Al or Brad has a comment about it in two weeks. But if I had to guess, if I had to guess for why Jesus didn't do something about it in that moment, I think it's because he knew that regardless of what happened to those coins that she put in the box, she would still experience the joy that comes from being generous. Regardless of what happened to those coins, she would still experience the joy and the contentment of giving. But to me, this still isn't the most surprising part of this story. Even though he doesn't stop the widow from giving, the most surprising part of this story is not anything that Jesus says or doesn't say. The most surprising part of this story for me is where Jesus sits. Both Mark and Luke begin their stories by telling us where Jesus is and what he's doing. He sits next to the offering box and he watches people put their money inside of it. Now, I grew up in a church that had a traditional offering box. I guess I shouldn't say it was a traditional offering box because I don't know what that is historically. But for me, that's all I knew growing up we had an offering box, and the offering box was at the back of the church. And the offering box sat there. I still remember, it was wood. It was beautiful oak wood. It was carved, and it had this, this light um, this light finish on it, so you could see kind of the grains were showcased in this offering boxes. It was about this tall. And I remember it always was at the back of the church. As you first came in, it was there, and then as you left, it was there. But I guess technically that was the back because this was the front. And I remember where it was because there were several times when I was younger where I would put it there myself. The church I grew up in, we met at a high school. And so we had our storage box and we would go there and we'd we'd take out the sound equipment and the music hymn books and, and different things. And once in a while when I got big enough and strong enough, I remember I picked up the wooden offering box and I'd walk it back to its spot and there it would sit. And that's where it would stay until the end of the morning. People were not asked to go back and put something in the box. Offering bags were not passed during the worship time and then emptied into that box. And I really can't remember any message from my entire upbringing about money. I don't remember it ever being talked about, about you should give, you should avoid debt, uh, you should make sure that when you take out loans that they're wise loans, Uh, You should save for the future. You should be generous. I have no memory of any of that ever being spoken about in the church that I grew up. I think money was just a taboo subject in that church. And so the offering box just sat there. And people used their money however they wanted to. And nobody talked about it. Which is why for me, this is the most surprising part of this story. Like if I put myself back into my, my 10-year-old self and I think about being in that church and having some person sit there or stand there and just stare at the offering box while people walk past it or put a couple coins in or, or put nothing in for months on end, like that's really hard for me to digest. I mean, that guy would, or, pers- or lady would just be looked down upon like, what are you doing? How dare you? And yet in this story, that's exactly what Jesus does. Why would he do this? Like seriously, why would he sit there with his disciples and just stare at people putting money or not putting money in the collection box? The best way I can understand this is by illustrating it through an image. I think an image is the best way that we can understand why Jesus did what he did. And the image comes from a classic Dr. Seuss story, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. If you remember the book or maybe you've seen the movie, the various renditions of it, uh, when the storyteller first introduces us to the Grinch, we're told that the Grinch hated Christmas. And the storyteller basically says he's not really sure why, but if he had to guess, if he had to surmise or come up with some sort of theory, this is his theory. And yes, it does rhyme, in case you've never read this. It could be that his head wasn't screwed on quite right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. And if you've seen the animated version of this film, there's a picture that looks just like that, where we have this sort of magic x-ray machine that goes right in front of his heart. And if you look real closely, you can actually see there's a tiny little heart, and then there's a one size larger heart, and then a two size larger heart, and of course it's empty because his heart truly is two sizes too small the primary call the primary ambition of a follower of christ is to develop a bigger heart the two greatest commandments jesus says love the lord your god with everything you have and secondly love your neighbor as yourself now, there's no magic x-ray machine that I know of. If there was, I'd love to use it because it'd give us a better understanding of how we're doing as a church and how we're growing into our mission and how we're doing collectively, making sure that we fulfill our calling. We can't measure our love of God and for others with pinpoint accuracy. But throughout the gospel stories, Jesus often tells us that our use of money is closely tied to our hearts. Our love for money actually competes with our love for god and jesus says that we can't love both we can't serve two masters we'll end up serving just one and we'll give lip service to the other he says you can't serve both god and money we either worship our wealth or worship with our wealth so jesus is watching the offering box that day for the same reason that he'd be watching the offering box today it gives him a glimpse into people's hearts A person's giving history isn't the same as a magic x-ray machine, but it's a pretty solid indicator about what people care most about. And Jesus cares what you do with your money because he cares about you. He doesn't want you believing that money is more trustworthy than, than he is because it's not. He doesn't want you worrying about how you're going to get more stuff because he knows that your stuff won't last and your stuff won't satisfy you. Jesus cares what you do with your money because Jesus cares about you. It's as simple as that. And so he sits and he watches and he looks at what people choose to worship. Now, we've made it a habit to talk about money pretty much every time we come together as a group of people and we worship. Sometimes we talk about it for only a minute or two when we ask people to give Sometimes we devote a whole teaching series to it, which is what we're doing over the next couple of weeks. And this stuff might make you feel uncomfortable. It really might make you feel uneasy. But it's not going to stop us from talking about money. And the reason is, is because Jesus talked about money a ton in the Gospels. If you were to read the four Gospels, and if you were to chart how many times Jesus talks about money, it's about 25% of all the words he used are tied to stewardship. Tied to possessions, tied to money, tied to that whole concept of stewardship. The only topic that Jesus talks about more is his kingdom. What he was there to establish. And if we're going as a church to establish a culture that looks anything like the kingdom that Jesus talks so much about, then we need to keep talking about what we're doing with our money and how we can use it to worship instead of worshiping it itself. The reason why we talk about money is not because we want to double our church budget. The reason we talk about money is because we want to double the size of your heart. Andy Stanley once said, Jesus doesn't want to get your money. Jesus wants to make sure your money doesn't get you. I think that's the perfect summary of what Jesus is talking about throughout the gospel stories. He doesn't want to get your money. He wants to make sure your money doesn't get you. Now, there's dozens of points and dozens of applications that come out of this story. We've covered just a few of them. And one of the things that I love most about this story is that Jesus notices this woman. I think he probably had to say a few things to his disciples to get their attention. Because presumably, there was lots of people putting money in. There was lots of people walking around. And there were rich people who in other points of the gospel we hear would announce their offerings. Sometimes they'd blow trumpets to get people's attention because they were so filled with pride, they wanted that self-recognition of what they were doing. And yet Jesus sees this woman, and he calls his disciples together to show them what's going on and to give them that teaching point. Jesus saw the poor widow, and he was moved by her devotion. And it reminds us that her gift mattered. And so do yours. What you do with your money matters. And it undoubtedly matters to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your words. I thank you for this story, Lord, and the reminder it is to us, even if it is difficult on us, even if it provides us with conviction and how we use our money. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that our hearts would desire to worship you more than they would worship our wealth or our pursuit of wealth. And so Lord, today and the days to come and throughout this series, I pray that we'd be honest with ourselves about what we do with the resources that you entrust to us. They're not resources that we gain for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that collectively as a church, we'd be so moved to be faithful to you that we would release our hands that so often want to clench things for ourselves. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be doubled in size, God, with an extravagant love and generosity, God. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. If you want to talk about anything that you experience, I'd be happy to chat with you and to pray with you. And so please have a great rest of the weekend.